Hebrews 10 because we're not preaching through Hebrews at the moment, and we're going to get to this passage later. <clears throat> we're on a series right now called Gospel Culture, and we're talking about what does it look like to have a little bit of heaven break into earth in what we call the local church. And what to, we're going to talk about today is actually something that this passage in Hebrews is really the best place I think we could go to. So it's going to be Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, but let me just backtrack a little bit. So we're in this series called Gospel Culture, and that is the social environment of the local church that springs out of people who are affected by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That, that should change the look and feel of every gathering, right? That, that we are affected by being forgiven by our, by our God, that we've been ushered into this new thing called His What am I? There I am. Okay. We'll put this in like a different pocket or something. So. Okay, gospel culture, social environment of those who are affected by God's grace. Um, it needs to be nurtured, however. It doesn't come automatically. And so the rest of this series has been about or is about um, what is the look and feel of it? What, what's the details of this gospel culture? So two weeks ago, Pastor Dan talked about how we see each other as what 1 Peter 2.9 calls a chosen race, uh, a holy nation, uh, a people who, whom God has possessed, that he's, that he's brought to himself and he owns, who have received mercy, who have been brought out of darkness into this marvelous light. So that's the, the starting point of, okay, like, who are we? Are we just a collection of people who decided to, to come on a Sunday morning because we're related to each other or we're friends with each other? No, the community of God has been formed at his call of people who would normally not get along, but we get along because we know that we're all chosen by grace uh, and not by works or any qualities that we have. And so that's our starting point. We're on the same team was the illustration that Dan used. Yeah, we're all playing on the same team. We're not opponents. We're not enemies. So that's the starting point. We have to see each other the right way. But now we're going to look this morning at how we talk to each other. What's the language of this new community that Christ is building? What does that look and feel like? What does it sound like? So today we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 19 to 25 which talks about that, and this is not a full exposition of the whole passage. I'm going to skip parts of it, come back to that later in the Hebrew series. But we're going to look beginning at the, at the beginning and the end of it, which have to do with this, this topic of how do we talk to each other in the local church. So I'm going to read the whole passage just for continuity, <clears throat> and then let's ask for the Spirit to teach us from it. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. <clears throat> we need, Lord, to hear from you this morning because our minds are full of everything else that we, let, we read and we heard all year, <laughs> all week long. So many different voices have been talking to us. We're inside our head a lot, and we need you to break through to us this morning and give us clarity and help us to see the beautiful things that you are doing and have done for those who are in Christ. And so show us again this morning by your Spirit what a great thing we've been swept up into, your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I was reading an editorial on a political speech that was given recently by one of our political leaders. <clears throat> and I was doing this during a break in my sermon prep, which probably wasn't a good idea. <laughs> because I was in this calm and hopeful state of mind as I'm reading through Hebrews, and I began to be agitated, restless, upset, even vengeful, as I was reading this editorial and reading the speech that it was editorializing about. Um, it wasn't just what the politician said, but it was how he said it. It wasn't just what the editor said, but how she said it. Both the speech and the critique were worded in such a way that it was intended to agitate, <laughs> to polarize, to stir up intense feelings of dislike. And it was working. <laughs> I had to go do something else for a while and come back to the sermon. I had to, I had to regain my composure. <clears throat> I would guess that in the last week, if not the last 24 hours, you've experienced something like that. You've been provoked by something that you heard or that you read in the news, in social media, maybe in your own home, maybe in the office. There is just so much in our public discourse that's not healthy, that's calculated to instill fear and anger, to destroy reputations, to stoke pride, to make people hate each other. The Lord has something so much better for us. Out of sinful, fallen people like us, Jesus is creating a new humanity whose conversation reflects the hopefulness and the beauty of the kingdom that is not of this world. It's summed up in verse 25, where we are told to be encouraging one another. Encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. Gospel culture is a culture of encouragement. 
That's what we're going to see this morning. And Lord willing, as we see that beautiful vision of what God intends for us, it will water what is already growing in our hearts in that area and maybe start new things growing, (laughs) new conversation that reflects this gospel culture of encouragement. So I want to start with just an observation from the passage. There's a connection that's made between the way that we talk and our experience of God's grace. Those two things go together. The gospel affects how we talk to one another. It really does. The passage starts in verses 19 to 21 with gospel doctrine retold to us using the imagery of the Old Testament temple worship. And this writer says, since these things are true, let us do this, this, and this. And the last exhortation is what we do with our speech. And that's the one we'll focus on. So let's look at this good news in verses 19 to 21, this gospel doctrine, and then see how it affects the way we talk to each other. So 19 to 21, just pointing to the the realities there, he says, brothers... We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And we have a great priest over the house of God. So we can summarize what he's saying this way. Brothers, and that means believers in Jesus Christ as Savior. Brothers, here's what we have. We have God's welcome. We have forgiveness. We have His blessing because of Christ's death on the cross, and we will never lose these things. That's how we can summarize that first part. you got to picture the tabernacle or the temple of Israel in the Old Testament days. It had an outer court, and that's where any Israelite could bring their offering, bring their animal, their sacrifice of some kind, for an offering for sin or something else. So that's the outer court. But then it's got this other structure inside of that. It was a tabernacle, a little tent, or it could have been later. It was the, it was the temple itself. And that, that building had two main areas. It had the holy place, which had certain furniture, and the priests could go in there and perform duties for worship. But then there was this back room, that's separated by this big heavy curtain, and that's the most holy place. Because that's the place where God has said, my presence on earth will, will be most notably seen here. This is where you can say God's presence is. And so that's what makes it the holy place, the most holy place, because God is holy. His eyes are too pure to look on sin. And, and He's the creator, the originator, the other, who's just so unlike anything that we know. He's just set apart. And so there's this holy God that represented in this most holy place. And because that was where He chose to make His presence known on earth, the closer you got to that most holy place, the more restrictions there were. So the Israelites could go to the outer court, only the priests can go into the holy place, and only the high priest, and only once a year, can go into the most holy place, and not without a sacrifice that atones for sin, his sin and the sins of his people. The closer you get to God, the more restrictions, the less access 
to God, to his favorable presence. And now here comes the good news that the, that the writer wants to draw our attention to. He says that we have confidence to enter the holy places. <laughs> we do. Brothers, all of us, all believers in Jesus, we have confidence that we can go into the very presence of God without fear. It's like 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 from two weeks ago. We are a holy priesthood. That's what God has made every believer. It's like you've been given the access into the most holy of holies, God's presence himself. <laughs> that is good news. You can walk right in. The door is open. You have God's welcome is what it means. You can expect a blessing from him and not a curse. You don't need to fear any punishment from him. God's favor is on you. That's what all that imagery is supposed to tell us. Now, why is that? Because of the new and living way into God's presence, which is through the curtain, behind the place, behind the curtain that's preventing you from going into the holy place. What brings you back there? The blood of Jesus. Through his flesh, that refers to the cross, where Jesus gave himself as the sacrifice that atones for the sins of all of God's people. Because of Jesus, every believer can have confidence. That's the word that's used here, confidence, that God is for me. I'm never going to find him in a bad mood. <laughs> He's always like, come on. Come on, come to me. I am for you. And Jesus ensures that we will never lose that great privilege because it says we have a high priest, a great priest over the house of God. We have, not we had. He lives. He was resurrected. He ever lives to intercede for us. He is always there. The nail marks the piercing in his side, always there before the throne, saying, this is why you, these people, these sinful people are forgiven and can come. It's always there. You can't lose this privilege. The high priest intercedes for sinners, always. So you can't fall out of favor with God if you're a genuine believer even though we're aware of our ongoing sins, even though we know we fail his moral standards, what we have, though, is a great high priest interceding for us always through his blood. And so we have God's favor. To have the God of the universe on your side, to have unlimited power and authority working in your favor all the time, that seems far-fetched. <laughs> but that is gospel doctrine. Now, here's how it affects how we talk especially how we talk to other believers. This affects how we talk to everybody, but our series is about this culture, the church culture. What does that look like? Well, here's what the writer says. This is how this affects what we talk, how we talk. He says, Therefore, brothers, since, so since we have confidence to enter the holy places, since we have this great priest, here's what we do. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together, 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see the connection. Since we have this privileged position of welcome, forgiveness, blessing from the Almighty Holy One, let's meet so we can encourage each other about these things. Let's keep reminding each other of the good news in a world that's so full of bad news. Let's keep this hope alive in each other's souls because the day is drawing near. That is the day, the final day in which God wraps up the history of this world. All believers, despite the hardships, despite the afflictions we face now, we are going to be swept up into a renewed world in unbroken happiness with God and with Christ forever. And all the wickedness will be ended. It's certain. Every day, it's one day closer. So let's encourage each other. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Let's do this. Let, let's remind each other about these unseen realities because that's how we're going to keep our hope alive in this world that's broken and painful and threatening. It's how we're going to get through life with our head above water. The word encourage means what it sounds like. Encourage. Put courage in. Put it into each other. It means to impart strength to cheer, to comfort. The realities of God's grace to us as sinners has the power to do that. It's truth that can support us in every failure, every affliction, and every opposition. And we need that, don't we? I mean, can any of us say, I don't need any encouragement? <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> There's a lot that tempts us to discouragement and to despair, our own faults and failures to begin with. When we look inside and we go, oh man. But more than that, worries about things, worries about our kids, worries about our finances, the general condition of society, fear of the future. All that stuff can bring us down, and God knows that. So, in His great love, He has assigned that other believers in the church will encourage you, will give you strength, will put courage into you. By their experience of God's grace, by their understanding of the Almighty God and all that He is for us in Christ, we'll need them to put strength into us as they're experiencing that strength from God. And we'll do that for each other. And this is God's plan. That was His organization of the church that we would encourage each other and keep our heads above water. Now realize this is not just positive thinking. This isn't just feel-good talk. This isn't cheery slogans like, if life gives you lemons, make lemonade. I mean, we need something better than that, right? What put courage into our souls is real unchanging truth that the God of the universe is on our side, that he's so in control of everything, even the things that you fear and dislike. He's so in control over it. He's so overseeing it that it must be part of a divine plan to have, to have his love extended to you. 
It has to be moving in a direction that at the end of it, you're going to say, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Though in the moment, it doesn't feel that way. But we believe that infinite love is at work in every detail. <clears throat> so we can forget that, though. We might have a hard time believing that, especially when everything looks terrible. Therefore, we need a, each other. We need to not neglect meeting together, but rather let's meet so that we can encourage each other. Let's put courage into each other with the glorious realities of what we have in Jesus. It's the same ethic we see in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. Because there Paul is giving guidance to the Corinthian church about their meetings. And he says this, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Let all of it be done for that. Whether it's singing, teaching, prophecy, tongues with interpretation, let all of that build. <laughs> let it be for the common good is another way he says it. It should encourage, it should put courage into us for today and tomorrow and next week and five years from now and the unforeseen future. Now let's think about the implications of this on our meetings and Sundays and small groups. We want Sundays and discipleship groups to be a place where needy, broken, hurting, fearful, and sometimes an all-out mess kind of people can come and expect to be encouraged regularly. We want that to be the expectation and our experience because we need it. <laughs> meeting together needs to be life-giving. We need that. It's, it, we, want it, we want these meetings to be something that we're eager to attend because we know that I'm going to leave that meeting in a better place than where I started. Downward spirals of negative thinking can be interrupted <laughs> in community. Sins that have a hold on you get weakened. Fear gets replaced with calmness, if not confidence. Hope rises. This is what the Lord wants each of us to experience. And when we experience it on a regular basis, well, we go to those meetings. We always go to what's giving us life. <laughs> Like, if you've got a vacation hanging out there, you don't have to be reminded, oh, yeah, you've got a vacation coming up. I mean, you're always thinking, man, when can I have that? I mean, is it today? How soon can I be there? That's what our meetings together can be like if we are encouraging the way that the Lord wants us to with substance, with the truth that's unchanging which reflects the real heart of God for sinners, well, then I want to be there. I want to be there. I want to get that. <clears throat> we say, Wednesday night's discipleship group, I'm there. <laughs> Sundays become the favorite day of the week, and not just because the playoffs are on TV. <laughs> I was going to say something about, that, about the Packers, but I won't. <clears throat> That's my team. We go to things that give us life, and the Lord wants us to enjoy it. 
together. Now, is every meeting going to be like that? No, because we still sin, right? We've got baggage. We're all in process. We can be annoying. (laughs) None of us can keep it all together all the time. But collectively, we're not all stuck in the same sins at the same time. We're not all in the depths of despair at the same time. So if you got a meeting, let's say 10 people attend it, nine of them are depressed, and one person is full of gospel hope, that one can lift up the nine. (laughs) The Lord wants our meetings to be places of encouragement regularly, places where we can be honest about what's going on in our life and confident that I won't be shamed or piled on Because we all know that we're sinners saved by grace here. Nobody's better than the other person here. We're all going in the same direction. We're on the same team. So let's move together. Let's be for one another because God is for us. That's the the environment that we want. Encouragement. That's the tone of how we talk. It doesn't mean we never need to be corrected or challenged At times, there even needs to be church discipline. But the banner over it all, the tone of it all, is encouragement, giving strength and cheer to one another in the the welcome that we have in Christ. Now, let's get practical about this. So what fuels this kind of gospel culture? There are ways that we can sabotage it (laughs) and bring a whole lot of discouragement. And there are ways that we can fuel it, and and raise the level of our conversation in a productive and God-glorifying and helpful way. So let me just lay out a couple principles that help us here. Start with this one first. Let's recognize the power that our words have. Recognize the power that our words have. They have great power for encouragement as well as great power for discouragement. Proverbs 18.21 says it this way, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life. To use an illustration, our words, whether they're written or spoken, should be treated like a loaded handgun. With a loaded handgun, you can either commit a murder or you can prevent a murder. Death and life are in the power of a handgun. Death and life are also in the power of your words and my words. You can destroy people with what you say. And you can revive people. You can refresh their souls. You can get them through another week by what you say. Some examples. I think we all know what it does to your soul when somebody insults you, belittles you, slanders you, says things that aren't true, throws you under the bus in some way. That hurts. You can have a great day. You can be doing good things. Everything's right in the world. And then there's this remark that just brings you down. Some assassination of your character, a betrayal, an unjust criticism, and maybe it comes in a text, maybe it's a post, and it's like being stabbed. David spoke like that about a betrayal by a friend in Psalm 55. 
21. He said of this guy, his words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Words can stab. They can ruin a life. The power of death is in words, but also the power of life is in words. They have power in the other direction, which is to encourage, to bless, to build up. <clears throat> a couple of historical examples of power of words. These are from general culture, but I think they, they make the point. To, I think tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr.'s day. Wait, I said that wrong. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Okay, that's his, that's his day tomorrow, right? So he's remembered for what? The I Have a Dream speech, right? Everybody remembers it. Why? Because it inspired a whole generation of people to rethink, hey, wait a minute, there's racism. There's, there's something wrong with the way we're treating people. And he inspired people, right, to do away with an evil. Hasn't been done away with completely, but it definitely helped. Likewise, Winston Churchill, right before World War II kind of broke out in England where they were being threatened, he gives his we will never surrender speech, right? And he galvanized the whole country to resist the Nazis that they were afraid were going to invade. He said, we're going to, he just inspired people, we're going to hold out. That's the power of words for life. And you know, the greatest example of the power of words is the gospel itself. Paul said to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Eternal life comes through the means of words, words that he's given us to speak to the non-believer and to each other. <laughs> The power of God for salvation is wrapped up in these truths about His mercy to sinners through Jesus. Great power to encourage and build up and even to save a life. <clears throat> life is in the power of the tongue. We have the privilege of speaking it to one another. And I know I've experienced this. You've experienced this many times. I'm not in a good place in my thinking. I mean, when I'm alone... Especially if I'm alone with the news, I don't go in good places usually. <laughs> I spiral down. <laughs> I get grumpy. I don't, you know, I don't want to be around people. I don't want to be interrupted. Leave me alone. That's not a good place to be. And then I don't feel like going to discipleship group. But I've learned resist that temptation. Resist that. And I've experienced in those meetings that I didn't want to go to a clarifying comment, a new perspective, somebody who's not in the place I'm at, who sees things clearly, and they say it to me, and I'm like, yeah, that's right, okay, all right, let's go. <laughs> the power of words to put strength and courage into each other. I know you've experienced it, so have I. The starting point, then, for cultivating this community of encouragement is recognizing the power that our words have. We have these tools that God's given us that we can either use to sabotage this culture or we can use to create it. We've got to remember that our words are like loaded handguns, so to speak. Caution is advised. Now, carrying on with that thought when it comes to words, we've all been on both sides of Proverbs 18.21. Sometimes we've used our words to destroy 
Sometimes we've used them to build up and encourage. So that means there's something for us to repent of as well as something to pursue. So let's talk about first the things to repent of and then the things to pursue. In a gospel culture, we repent of how we've used our words to destroy. Repent means to turn away from something because of the conviction and the understanding that it's wrong. And when it comes to speech, there are many sins of the tongue. Jesus emphasized the moral implications of what we say in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's so comprehensive that I think we would just have to write that off as hyperbole. We would want to do that. Too high of a bar for that to be real. But this is Jesus showing us just how high God's standard is for our speech. Every careless word. Every word we didn't think through long enough that we just threw out there in the heat of the moment that wasn't motivated by good things, that wasn't completely appropriate, every one of those words is enough to condemn you before God. Everyone is a misuse of why God gave us our tongues. And so it's Him that we've sinned against, and that is deserving of a punishment, of a judgment. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. God wants us to use our tongues to give grace, to help people encounter something of the goodness and mercy of God, but often that's not what comes out of our mouths. Sins of the tongue include gossip, slander, sinful judgment, malicious talk, dishonesty. We can go on and on. There are so many texts about this. One thing I've noticed in public discourse, and especially includes the Internet, is the readiness that people have to just trash each other, to just make quick judgments and, and say the most inflammatory things without shame. I came across a word coined by a pastor named Scott Sauls. I don't know who he is, but H.B. Charles, who I do know, referenced it. And so I read his, I follow his Instagram stuff. And I thought it was a really good uh, explanation of sinful judgment. The, the word that he coined was assumicide, <laughs> which is a takeoff of the word homicide, I think. Um, he describes a suicide this way, four points. One, turns a blind eye to the full story, forms firm dogmatic conclusions that assume the very worst based on hearsay, gossip, personal bias, and straw man logic. That was number two. Three, paints a damning caricature of the person in question. And four, shows zero remorse when proven wrong. A suicide. I think that kind of thing is so common that we can lose the awareness that it's even wrong because it's just out there. Everybody does it. We might engage in it ourselves, but that's a violation of God's good purpose for our speech. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. That's a complete ban. So we have to start by re 
repenting of our careless words, but also remembering Jesus atoned. If you're a believer, those careless words are atoned for. But remember the seriousness of it. Jesus had to die for you to be forgiven for saying these things. They're serious. And so we, as lovers of God, as renewed people who are moving in His direction, we say that, we, we see that, we go, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to speak words of life. I want to be aware of it if I'm saying the other. And then we move in that direction instead. It means we endeavor to change and be helpful and not destructive. And so that moves to the last point, which is, we do the, the godly opposite of the death words. Instead, we cultivate words that give life. We cultivate. I like the word you use, cultivate, because it's a process. <laughs> it's not a switch that you turn on and all of a sudden, wow, you, you're, you talk a totally different language. There's, there's growth in this, right? But we cultivate words that give life. A text on that is Colossians 4, 6. Here's how we speak words of life. Here's how we encourage each other. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, that means more than just biting your tongue and not saying that mean thing that you want to say. <laughs> I'm not just going to close my mouth. No, I'm going to cultivate a heart that wants to speak graciously to someone. I'm aware that I'm a sinner, God has been gracious to me, and I want to communicate something of that to you. I want you to encounter God's grace in some way through what I'm saying here. Let your speech always be with gracious, grace, gracious it says. I want to communicate God's heart. He says, seasoned with salt. That's similar. This is language that drops the Lord into the conversation and makes the person thirsty to hear more. This is what makes it different than just the conversation of the world. It's salting the conversation with some kind of pointers to Jesus Christ and all that we have in Him. The life He came to bring, the hope, the wisdom, the promises of God. It's not just being nice, it's helping us look to the Lord in everything. I think of it like this. So maybe you're having some dinner table conversation, maybe it's a conversation in a discipleship group, and everyone's throwing out their opinions on some current event, okay? Something happened, everybody's talking about it, and we're all like throwing out our ideas and our opinions and so forth, and that's going on for a while, and maybe that's creating some tension, maybe some worry, maybe some disgust is going around. You fill in the blank of what happens on your dinner table conversations. But at some point, if we're affected by God's grace, someone will say something like this, but what does it look like to trust God in this situation? Or maybe a verse comes to mind that speaks to that issue. Here's what God has to say about that. And then all of a sudden, it's not just us throwing our opinions back and forth and having this round table. Now God has entered the picture. Now we're before the face of God in what we're saying. And now we're remembering, oh, there's somebody above us who has something to say about this and about our response to this. And now we're in a position to receive grace. But only if there's that saltiness, only if we're pointing back to Him. 
Now, this also speaks of thoughtfulness in how we converse with each other. Colossians says we are to know how you ought to answer each person. Knowing how to answer involves listening first, then forming your response. Listening is one of the most critical things that we can do if we want to give grace, if we want to encourage. If we make assumptions about where a person is at, if we trot out our pet, our pet answers about what we think is going on, we are likely going to miss the mark. We are not going to be helpful. Have you ever shared something in a group setting or maybe with just another person, and you got the impression that they stopped listening to you at some point? Like, the first sentence got out there, and they didn't hear anything after that because already in their mind they were thinking about how they're going to address what you just said in that first sentence without hearing the rest of it. Has that ever happened to you? Where like All of a sudden their lights went out <laughs> and then they come back with an answer and you're like, that is totally not what I was talking about. Right? That happens. Why does that happen? Because we're not really listening and asking the follow-up questions and finding out what's really going on there. And then once we know what's really going on, then we can say, oh, aha, well, how about this? And hopefully that's informed by the gospel, that thing that we're about to say. But that's one of the ways we can encourage and bless each other is to listen before we say anything. Be slow to speak, James would say. Let me just address one question before bringing this to a close. Somebody might ask, well, what about the place for admonition, for warning, uh, even for rebuke? Those are appropriate things for believers to say in the right context. Jesus did all those things. So where does that fit in in this culture of encouragement. Well, here's how I would answer that. Correction does build up when it's done rightly. It is a way to give grace to those who hear if they're blinded by their sin or by wrong, wrong thinking. It, it helps them align themselves more closely with the Lord. However, we are not likely to correct very well unless we remember two things. Number one, you aren't perfect like Jesus is. <laughs> so you don't stand on the moral high ground that he did when he rebuked others. You could be dead wrong. Humility is always required. That's number one. And number two, your correction will probably do no good unless the other person knows that you genuinely care about them. Otherwise, it just comes across as cold, unfeeling judgment. Peter could bear with Jesus saying, Get behind me, Satan, because he knew this Lord loves me. Does the person you want to correct feel that love from you? If not, you're probably not ready to correct. I'll leave it at that. Let me conclude this point. We cultivate words that give life, that encourage. That's the gospel culture that comes from gospel doctrine. And you know what? We can, we can grow in this one way by surrounding ourselves with people who do this. Um, and they're in the church. <laughs> so, so be friends with the people who know how to speak grace. People that are consistently encouraging. 
learn from them. Uh, I went to this class last April. Ray Ortland was the teacher. That's where this whole language of gospel culture kind of started in our vocabulary. And since then, I've, I've uh, become his friend on Instagram. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know I'm his friend, but I think of him as my friend. <laughs> so I'm following him. And the reason I'm doing that is because he speaks the language of grace, is, is how I would say it. Um, the vocabulary that flows from joy in God fully aware of our sin, fully aware of the suffering, fully aware of what's wrong in the world, and yet able to see the good, able to see God's grace, able to celebrate things that I would miss. I need to be around somebody like that because I don't see those things. And so get around people like that and learn from them. Let them be your influencers. Just take, take inventory of which voices are talking to you the most? And probably most of them are coming through your smartphone. So 99% of those are not helpful. I mean, that you have an option to, to listen to. So make sure that you're getting contact with people who are making you more aware of God's grace, who make you happier in the Lord, who put courage into your life instead of drain you and make you start to Use words that want to destroy. So pick your influences carefully and make sure that they're filled with the ones that are speaking life into your soul and not just making you into a wretch. <laughs> I'll close with this. The Lord wants our church and all churches to be a place of encouragement where the freedom, the stability, the cheerfulness of God's grace is evident in how we talk to each other. Let us meet together encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because the way the world ends is us being happy forever together. So let's bring it into today. Why wait until then? <laughs> let's do it now. The first words Jesus said to his fearful disciples after his resurrection were these, Peace be with you. <laughs> He's the one that leads the way in this language. Let's also help one another to have peace in the gospel promises of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> I thank you, Lord, that we have something to be encouraged about. We wouldn't think that to see all around us, but with eyes of faith, we can see that uh, things are amazingly in our favor if we've been called to be your people. <laughs> and so thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to remind each other of that. Put courage into our hearts through each other and may that be our growing experience in discipleship groups sundays hallways phone conversation texts all of that we want to have a piece of heaven right now lived out among us and i know that's your desire for us thank you in jesus name amen amen let's stand and sing to one another one of the things we do when we sing to one another is encourage one another. Um, as Paul talks about teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think this song uh, helps us do that, asking each other questions, confirming truth, and hopefully we